Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I want to begin by asking you a question. I want you to reflect on something. Not out loud, just to yourself. If you could imagine or create that perfect world for yourself, what, what would it look like? What is perfection? Just think about it for a minute. So now, without saying it out loud, how much of that perfect world included you and your wants and your desires? I don't know. I'm just asking you to think about that. I don't know if you ever noticed, but the Lord's Prayer is divided up basically into two parts. It's divided up into a part about God and His kingdom, and the other part is about us in the kingdom of God. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes when we think of our perfect world, and I know I've embedded it in the direction I wanted to go just by using the personal pronoun, our or your perfect world, sometimes our inclination is to immediately go to ourselves. Everything was peaceful in my family. Everything in my body worked. All my friends got along. The list could go on and on and on in your perfect world, right? But I think the Lord's Prayer divided the way it is. It's very instructive, um, divided into these two parts. Because to begin with, the, Lord is not, the Lord's Prayer is not about us, it's about God. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It all begins as referring to God. And perhaps, just perhaps, if we hear that well, it guards us against self-centeredness. It guards us against self-centeredness even in our prayers. If we listen carefully, we notice, especially in this phrase that we're going to consider this morning, it reminds us that the kingdom of God is not something that we establish. It's something we ask God to establish. That doesn't mean we're not active in the kingdom of God. 
But it means we recognize the source, that it comes from God, and we pray that he will do it. So I have several simple questions uh, for our reflection this morning on this particular portion of the Lord's Prayer. The first question is a simple question. As I mentioned, it's this, it's this, where is the kingdom? Where is the kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom of God, easily answered, is from the prayer itself, it's in heaven, right? The kingdom of God is in heaven. But that doesn't just mean some ethereal place outside time and space, a reality that is disconnected from our world. It simply means that the kingdom of God has always existed eternally in the presence of God. That is, where God is present, most fully present. The kingdom of God is most fully present. So where is the kingdom of God? To put it simply, it's in the presence of God. That's where the true kingdom of God is. As the psalmist once said, in your presence is fullness of joy, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now that does not mean, of course, that the kingdom of God is not present with us. It just means that when the kingdom of God is present with us, it's because God is present with us. And we identify it in a variety of ways. This last week on Thursday night at our regular board meeting time, we decided uh, way, way in advance to have the board and the staff of the church to meet together, all of us. Large meeting, talk about the church, the issues related to it, how ministry was going. And uh, the one who led our meeting was our clerk, Nate Hendershot, and he began our meeting with an interesting question. He said, um, I'd just like you to think about this and go around the table and everybody respond. It's an icebreaker. And here's the question. If you had one moment, one, let's say, experience in your life that you would like to go back and do over again, what would it be? Well, someone said their wedding because they didn't remember anything about it. Um, someone else talked about being with their kids in a certain occasion. Um, he also said if you could do it over and fix it, you know, that's, that's okay too. But I was struck by one person's response. And her response was, I remember a moment this is how I remember her saying it. I remember a moment that I tried to recapture over and over again. And here was the moment. We were on a walk, apparently in their neighborhood. Nothing fancy about the walk. It wasn't Disney World. It was a walk with three young children her and her husband. And she said, I looked at my children and my husband who was ahead of me and I was overwhelmed with pure happiness or contentment. It was like in that moment, everything 
was the way it was supposed to be. She said, I not only treasured that moment, but I I continue to go back to it. I don't want to glamorize that description too much and take it too high, but I do want to say that was the kingdom of God in that moment. That person was experiencing the pureness of the kingdom of God. That's why it was so profound. And I think that's why she returns to it. Jesus said when he came to this earth, he announced something that was rather revolutionary, even though people had hoped for it and anticipated it. He said, the kingdom of God is among you. What did he mean by that? You're so good that when you do good things, the kingdom of God is here. No, no, that's part of it, but that's not really the essence of it. Jesus was saying, the kingdom of God is among you because I'm here. Because the real presence of the divine God of the universe is here in me. That kingdom is among you. For centuries in the church, people have tried to figure out what does it mean for the kingdom to be present and be among us, especially since Jesus is gone. In one description of how the presence of God is the kingdom of God in this world has often hearkened back to St. Augustine and multiple Christian theologians playing off the theme. And they basically say this. Here's the reality of the kingdom of God. There are two kingdoms that are lying parallel to one another, moving constantly. And the one kingdom that is obvious to us, as soon as you walk out and start your car and get into the traffic, here's what's obvious. It's called the kingdom of the earth or the city of the earth or the city or the kingdom of man. It's pretty obvious it's out there. Augustine put it this way. That kingdom, this is very reductionistic but powerful. That kingdom is the love of self and the contempt for God. That's the kingdom of this world. The love of self and contempt for God. Now, that's a stark contrast, I understand. But stay with me. Augustine says, alongside that kingdom, intertwined with that kingdom, is another kingdom. It's the kingdom of heaven. And he says, in effect, the best way to describe the kingdom of heaven is love of God and contempt for self. You notice the extreme language. As a matter of fact, contempt for self is not something that most people would endorse in this world. And as a matter of fact, for most Christians, we would say, really? Self-loathing? Some might suggest that Augustine went to that level, self-loathing. 
But I think historically, something else has been embraced by the Christian tradition. And it simply means this, that in our human condition, in our human world, we are more inclined to love self. We are more inclined to love our desires than we are to love God. And when we love self inordinately, we by effect have contempt for God. So the kingdom of God is pure love of God and not thinking about self. And those two kingdoms, says the Christian tradition, are intertwined. And sometimes you see the kingdom of God emerge. Selflessness and love of God. And at other times, you see the kingdom of humanity emerge, which is selfishness, self-centeredness, and by virtue of that, contempt for God. That self-centeredness, of course, is contempt for God, contempt for others, contempt for the natural world, contempt for those who are less fortunate. That's selfishness. And it's not the kingdom of God. So what is the kingdom of God? It's the presence of God. And it's right here, right now, alongside the kingdom of the world. What does the kingdom of God look like? If we're instructed by Jesus, as we are, to pray your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what does the kingdom look like? This could be not just a sermon, but a book. What does the kingdom look like? But let me give you some quick points of overview concerning the kingdom of God. This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like. It looks like no rich and poor. There's no such thing. The kingdom of God is the absence of hatred. It just doesn't exist. The kingdom of God is the absence of suffering and disease and death. The kingdom of God is the absence of selfishness and jealousy and pride. Just imagine, I ask you to imagine a perfect world. Imagine a world that did not include selfishness and jealousy and pride. Imagine your life, if only for a moment, when it did not include selfishness and jealousy and pride. That is the kingdom of God. It's a kingdom that is absence, absent of crime and war. It's a place where perfect, whole peace, or to use the Hebrew word, shalom exists. Not just the cessation of hostilities, but a place where wholeness and flourishing are part of the norm. Where the deepest longings of the human heart, and I do not mean by that what we want, because frequently what we want is what we ought not to have. I frequently want something like a Snickers bar, and there is no reason for me to have it. 
None at all. Okay? So I'm not talking about desires that way. I'm talking about the desires, the deep longings of the heart that are frequently twisted because of sin. Those deep longings of the heart are satisfied in the kingdom of God. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. So first question, where is the kingdom? It's in the presence of God. Second question, what does it look like? We just mentioned that. Third question, how does it come? After all, Jesus said we pray for it, right? We ask for it to come. So how does it come? Let me begin with a not, okay? It does not come from force. My friends, let's admit that we have a sordid history in the Christian church of trying to bring the kingdom by force. I believe I've mentioned before, but I'll never forget the moment when I was on campus at the university and an instructor in sociology of religion asked me to come and represent evangelicalism. Well, that's too big of a task anyway, certainly too big of a task in one setting, but I did my best, and then I entertained questions. And one of the students said, how can you reconcile the history of violence in the church against other people who don't believe the same thing? And my answer was, I can't reconcile it. All I can do is confess it as sin. And I'm sorry. Because we have a history of that, my friends. You might say it's something like emperors who thought they were God's chosen instrument. Or you might see it in the history of really the Roman Empire when a famous emperor called Constantine said he had a vision. He had a vision in battle and the vision was in this sign conquer. It was a vision of the cross apparently from Jesus. I wasn't there. But I don't think it was from Jesus. Unless interpreted a different way. Because that emperor, many emperors after him, continued to conquer in the sign of the cross with what? A sword. They subjugated people. They brought on the Christian morality that they believed was the kingdom of God at the point of the sword. They forced people to confess Jesus Christ or die at the point of the sword. Have you ever thought about how eerily similar that is to its opposite? Where in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus watches Peter pull out a sword. and Jesus says, put it away. Have you ever thought how 
eerily similar it is to the opposite of the kingdom of God when Peter, who pulled out the sword, began to realize what the kingdom of God was all about. And before it was all over, tradition says he didn't conquer by way of the sword. He was crucified up down, upside down. Why? Because he understood the advancement of the kingdom of God was not by force. So if that's not the way the kingdom of God comes by force, how does it come? It comes by asking for it, by praying for it, like in this prayer. And to experience the kingdom of God, we have to believe in it. It's not just some pie in the sky. It's a reality. And God will establish his kingdom. In order to pray for it effectively, we not only have to believe in it, we have to experience it. That is, we have to want it. We have to want the experience of the kingdom of God. And frequently the experience of the kingdom of God is curbing our own desires. So if we pray for it, we must pray for it that way. And if we pray for it and ask for it, in order to experience it, we must work for it. We must work tirely for the presence of the kingdom of God. How else does it come? It comes by living it. Let me remind you of something. In Matthew's gospel, the prayer called the Lord's Prayer is in the context of Jesus' most famous sermon, namely the Sermon on the Mount, which articulates by Jesus what the kingdom really is. And what does it say concerning the kingdom? It said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those of you who are not filled with your own self-importance. Those of you who are not filled with pride and self-sufficiency. But those of you who are so poor in spirit that you realize you must have God. That's the kingdom. How does it come? It comes to those who mourn. It comes to those who grieve over sin. Sin that damages our world. We grieve over immorality and violence and injustice. And we grieve over our own sin because our own sin destroys our relationships and, well, destroys our world and destroys and alienates us from those that we love. We grieve over sin. We mourn. How does the kingdom of God come? It comes to those who are meek, for those who trust in God. And are not proud. How does the kingdom of God come? It comes through those who are hungry for righteousness. Who are just ravishing for the things of God. Not hungry for more stuff. Not hungry for more wealth. Not hungry for more power. Hungry for God. How does the kingdom of God? It comes... 
It comes through those who are merciful. It comes through those who have been given mercy by God and for that reason cannot imagine but giving mercy to others. How can you imagine anything else when you've been given mercy by God? It comes to those who live in accordance with this, the pure in heart, those who are single in their devotion to God. It comes through those who are peacemakers. Not just peaceful and quiet, but peacemakers. People who actually mediate a dispute. People who actually stand up for those who are oppressed. It comes through peacemakers. And this one is so hard to understand or at least to believe. It comes to those and through those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. That's how the kingdom of God comes, says Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Finally, it comes at the end of it all. In the book of Revelation, we see that picture. God wraps it up and he makes everything new. And I've referred to a potential series on the book of Revelation. It's coming. I'm going to do it. It starts the end of April. And it's about the big story. It's about God making everything new. So the final question is this. If that's how the kingdom of God comes, if the kingdom of God is actually the presence of God, if that's what it looks like, we have to acknowledge we're not there yet, right? We also have to acknowledge as the Christian calendar remembers every single year that Christ once came and he's coming again. That's called Advent. We remember that someday he will make all things new. So in the meantime, big question, how do we wait? In the meantime, how do we wait? We wait by working to bring the kingdom of God to earth. We figure out a way to be on the side of peace and justice in our world. My friends, you know, that sounds great, doesn't it? You know how complicated it is? One reason it's complicated is because we don't have it all figured out what true justice is. Another reason it's complicated is when we enter into our world, our political world in particular, we can't quite figure out what is the best representation of the kingdom of God. Or to put it another way, if you think whoever it is you're following is the perfect representation of the kingdom of God, stop. Run the opposite direction. You're following an idol, right? That's why it's difficult trying to figure out a way to bring the kingdom of God to the earth. But we do 
desire, long for, and are charged to bring the kingdom of God to this earth. The second way we bring the kingdom of God to this earth and how we wait as we await the kingdom of God is we share the good news. In other words, we let people know the kingdom actually is here. Did you know the king? Do you know the king? Have you ever heard the good news concerning Jesus Christ? Right here, right now, he is present. Right here, right now, you can experience the kingdom of God, if only partially. Please let me introduce you to the kingdom. How do we wait? We wait by making disciples. By making disciples. Who are you working with? Who are you investing in? Who are you doing your best to train to be a better disciple of Jesus Christ? If you can't answer that question, with at least a name, you got work to do. Because we're all called to make disciples. How do we wait? We wait expectantly. One of the earliest Christian prayers, I mean beyond the Lord's Prayer and the early Christian church, comes from a word called Maranatha. Which just means, come, Lord Jesus. Come. Please, Lord Jesus, come. That's what Jesus instructs us to do. And as we pray and wait, we look for opportunities to participate in the kingdom of God. As we pray and we wait, we celebrate the appearance. Even if only there for a moment of the kingdom of God, of God's righteousness and justice and peace. You know, one of the ways we celebrate this is when we all get together and we remember what God is doing in our lives. There's another way we celebrate it, and I think maybe being more introverted not wanting to get into people's business, we don't celebrate it this way as much as we ought. We, we don't look around in our life and say to someone, thank you. Thank you for being the presence of Jesus. You really blessed me. You really made this workplace a better environment. You really stood up for that person who was oppressed Thank you for implementing, bringing the kingdom of God into the world. I just want to celebrate that. As Christ followers, we are called. If you don't remember anything else, I I wish you would remember this. As Christ followers, we have a calling. 
And our calling is not to force the kingdom of God upon our world. Our calling is to witness to the kingdom of God within our world. Not force it, but witness to it so that the beauty of the kingdom of God is irresistible to those who do not yet believe. And I suppose one of the best ways to do that is to pray the prayer. So will you join me and pray it together? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.